Good morning. It's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army. Hey, grace and peace to all of you today. We are on a journey through Matthew's biography of Jesus. And uh, as we've been going through here, we're all the way up into chapter 12, which is kind of the end of this section of a, a series of disputes uh, that Jesus has been having with the Pharisees. A, a group of religious lay leaders of the day. And Matthew has been laying it out because he believes that Jesus's response to these disputes is proving his, Matthew's point about who Jesus is. Now, find Matthew chapter 12, because uh, you always want to look stuff up, especially if the guy in front of you could be telling you anything, which frankly, any of us who are preaching could, because you tend to trust us, right? It must be the tie. Always look up anything someone tells you is in the Bible. I'm going to tell you that there's stuff from Matthew chapter 12 and a couple other places. I'm going to tell you where you can find it because I want you to go look it up for yourself, right? All right. Now, I am going to read you from the scriptures uh, here and there. And while you're finding that, I'm going to tell you a little something about this podcast that I listen to. It's called uh, Science Versus. Some of you probably have heard about it. It's pretty popular. Um, it's a show that takes an issue or an idea and it investigates it from every side that they can. And then they present the information that they come up with on all those sides. And then after that, they share their conclusion and they give you all the citations so that you can go check their work. Um, now, they had an issue recently where they took on um, a particular medical treatment. I, I'm not going to get into what it was because that's not necessarily the important part of this. Um, what's important though, there was a doctor who first promoted this and made a big deal out of it. And it, as a result, kind of blew up around the world and became a big deal treatment. And the doctor who first promoted it goes on this show and he explains his reasons for why he thought this was such a great thing. And he talks about the study that caught his attention and the other facts that led to him deciding to promote and use this treatment with his patients and to recommend that other people do the same. Then the team looked at that study and they discovered that it had been reviewed and determined to be fraudulent. There was nothing, uh, no real data in this study. It was all made up. So they went back to the doctor and he said, well, it doesn't matter because there are other studies. And, and there were, there were about 75 other studies that he was relying on. <clears throat> so it wasn't all just this one uh, wonderful study that uh, was the, the centerpiece of his, his belief. The problem is most of those other 75 studies also turned out to have serious problems in the way that they were done. Some had fraudulent data, some had just badly collected data, and some were not done in a proper format, which left very little evidence for the treatment itself. When they went back to the original doctor with this information, he said, well, it's obvious there's a bias against the treatment. And then after that, new studies came out, larger, properly done studies, and they showed absolutely no evidence that this treatment worked at all. It, it probably doesn't hurt, but it pretty definitely doesn't help. And they went back to the original doctor and said, okay, what do you think about this? And he said, well, it's obvious what's going on. There's a giant conspiracy between Big Pharma and the medical community at large to keep this treatment out of the hands of the common people. 
And, and looking at it, he says, well, you know what? There's no evidence that the reporting team could produce, which was going to convince him otherwise, and that obviously these reporters had just been brainwashed or hoodwinked by the conspiracy. Now, listening to this, it was obvious to me that his pride won't let him say or possibly won't even let him believe that he might have been wrong or that he'd been fooled by that first fraudulent study. This doctor would rather believe that dozens of researchers who checked the work were duped or dishonest and that thousands of people were somehow able to manufacture a giant conspiracy and keep it quiet. He would rather believe that than accept that he might just have been wrong. Which reminded me a lot of the passage that we've been working through. That the Pharisees, rather than admit that they might have been wrong about some of their scripture interpretations, they've gone beyond disagreeing with Jesus to actually calling him the devil, to rejecting everything that he's ever said or done and not even trying to evaluate it anymore. Hopefully by now you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to go and start today at verse 38. Just one quick sec here. Matthew 12, verse 38. <clears throat> I'm reading today from the New International 2011 edition, by the way. If you're trying to follow along and you want your words to match mine, that's what you would need. Uh, if your words don't match because you're using a different translation, pay attention. The meaning behind the words should be the same, even if the words that are used are slightly different. Verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. All right, we're going to interrupt already. First, anytime Matthew records someone calling Jesus teacher, you know they're up to no good. Second, more importantly, let's look at what they're asking for. They're asking for a sign. Well, what kind of a sign? Did you ever see that movie, Bruce, Bruce Almighty? Jim Carrey, Morgan Freeman, wonderful movie, great film. If you ever get a chance, stream it. It's out on every streaming service. If you haven't watched it for 20 years, go watch it again. There's this one scene where Jim Carrey's character is praying, oh, please, God, please send me a sign. And then he drives past a giant flashing caution ahead sign. And then he's like, oh, really, God, send me a sign. And he gets cut off immediately by a truck filled with road signs that say danger ahead, which he completely ignores. And as he speeds around that truck, he crashes into a pole. Now, there's, there's more, but you get the point. Which is kind of funny because the characters still didn't get the point. Yeah. Just like the Pharisees here, right? Remember what's been brought to us at this stage in the story. Jesus has been teaching and fulfilling prophecies and performing miracles. He has been so blatantly obvious about who and what he is that the average guy in the crowd is starting to ask questions like, hey, I think this guy might be the Messiah we've been waiting for. What do you think? But instead of seeing all that and asking themselves who Jesus could be, a lot of these so-called leaders were saying, hey, this guy is not exactly what we were expecting and he won't do what we tell him, so we need to do something about him. Which is what we've seen as we've been looking at this passage. The first thing they decide is that they need to destroy Jesus. Then they said that any miracles that he did were obviously the work of Satan. And now they're coming to him asking for what exactly? A, a sign? 
Jesus has already done the signs that God said the promised king of kings was going to do, but somehow that wasn't good enough for these guys. So what was going to be good enough? Kind of like that doctor who is only willing to believe in a study that supports his position? These guys are just going to reject anything that Jesus does that doesn't support their position. And I got to tell you, as far as positions go, that's a foolish position to take. And Jesus calls them out on it. Look at verse 39. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. All right, a bunch of stuff going on in here. Jesus is foreshadowing his own death and resurrection, but that's not actually the main point of what he's saying. It's important, but it is not the main point. Nineveh, in case you didn't know, that was the capital of Assyria. Now, the Assyrians had been responsible for the destruction of northern Israel and the ten northern tribes. They were uh, particularly brutal in war, and they weren't much better at peace, and they were proud of their brutality, which is how we know, because they recorded it everywhere. And God sent Jonah to preach that they needed to get their lives in order because judgment was coming. And the people in Nineveh, in that capital city of Assyria, they listened to Jonah. They listened to this guy who was just walking through the city going, hey, judgment is coming, destruction in 40 days. You're going to be wiped out. God is angry with you. And they listened to him. And they repented. And they threw themselves on God's mercy. And God blessed them and released them from his judgment. He gave the city, ended up being another 75 years before they had fallen so far back into depravity that he took care of them. He brought judgment to their door. Jesus tells the people that he is preaching to that Nineveh, who repented at Jonah's word, will condemn them. Something greater than Jonah is speaking to them, and they are not listening. So the people of Nineveh who listened to Jonah are going to be able to stand up and say, you had your chance. Jesus goes on to give him another example. This is at verse 42. He says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about the uh, the Queen of Sheba when she visited Solomon. She'd heard about Solomon's wisdom, and she thought, hey, I'm going to go check that out. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we're told, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Well, why did she do this? Well, because she didn't believe that he could possibly be all that in a bag of chips the way that she'd been told. But she talked to him, and she watched him, and she asked him questions. And after all that, we get to, uh, this is First Kings 10, verse 6. It says, she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. 
But I didn't believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. So what happened here? She came and she investigated. She found out that everything she'd been told was right. And in fact, she found that what she'd been told wasn't everything. What she found was greater than she'd been told. And so, because of the evidence in front of her, she believed. She changed her mind about what was true and what wasn't. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they heard about Jesus. They came to investigate, and they found that everything they had been told was right. In fact, what they found was even greater than they'd been told. But admitting that would have been hard on their pride. They'd have to acknowledge that they'd been wrong about some things. But Jesus says something greater than Solomon is there. And if they fail to pay attention to it, that queen of Sheba herself will stand and condemn them for their unbelief. Now, I want to make a very important point here. A lot of people think Jesus is being harsh with these guys. But I don't think that's it. I think what's happening is he's trying to be bold and strong. And he's trying to get to them. He's trying to reach them. He's trying to get them to, to come around. He's not trying to condemn them. In fact, he doesn't condemn them. Look at what he says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that his opponents are wicked. He does tell them that a wicked generation asks for what they just said they needed. He doesn't say to them that he condemns them for what they're doing, but he does point out that they're falling short of these two examples where pagans came to faith by what they saw and how this group of believers, these are God's people who are questioning him, this group has an even better reason to turn to God than those people ever had. Jesus is calling to them. Will they answer him? And what happens if they don't? Jesus goes on in verse 43 to give an example. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds that house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Again, this is a warning. It's not a condemnation. It's a warning. It's Jesus trying to say, look, get, get out of in front of the truck that's about to run you over. You got to get out of the road here. If you don't declare your allegiance to God, if you don't invite him in to fill your life, you're just staying open for agents of the enemy to take over. And that always ends badly. Remember, you're all in here. One way or the other, you are all in. What did we say last week? It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. There is no in-between. There is no neutral ground. You are part of the house and the kingdom of God, or you're not. You're in God's family, or you're not. Look at verse 46. Well, Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. 
Someone told him, hey, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. <laughs> you can find this story in other uh, biographies of Jesus too. Mark tells this story in his narrative in chapter 3. And uh, Mark, he points out that Jesus' family is actually here to try to take him home, to get him out of the public eye, because they think he's crazy. Now, Matthew's not concerned with that. Matthew wants his audience to hear what Jesus says next, because he thinks it's a conclusion to this whole dispute that's been going on for the last two chapters. Well, Jesus was still talking to the crowd. His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him, and someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And Jesus replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You may not realize it, but Jesus has just redefined the most important unit in his society. Family was everything. And he's just included everyone who accepts the kingdom of God into his family. And the early church uh, would emphasize that really heavily in those first years after the resurrection. And I think it's something we should still emphasize now, but we can look and see the evidence in the New Testament of how much importance these guys put on the fact that we are a new family unit. Most of the letters of the New Testament bring up the idea that those who are part of God's kingdom are family, just the same as if we had been born to the same parents. And that carried so much more meaning than we Western individualists tend to give it. Family was everything. And if you were family, you were bonded together. You were responsible for one another and bound by honor to strive for the same goals. Declaring allegiance to God's kingdom also meant that the priorities of that kingdom became the priorities that you were supposed to hold as first and most important in your life. But the whole kingdom also becomes yours to lean on, to draw on, and to learn from. It, it's about belonging. That's what family is. It's togetherness. It's belonging. It's a collective group of people who all are striving towards the same goal. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote this. He said, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, when you're family, there may be disagreements, but there should be no divisions, right? You're still your own person, but you are the family as your driving force, as your, your first priority, like I said. There may be disagreements. There should be no divisions. And, and there aren't, frankly, there are no divisions as long as you remember whose family we are part of. And as long as we are focused on fulfilling the will of God, the father of our family. When we accept a place in the kingdom of God, we become agents of God part of the family of God. And it is our responsibility then to uphold the honor of God by doing the will of God. Jesus has been trying to call attention throughout this entire passage to the fact that we are either part of the kingdom or we're not. 
He's invited us in. He's shown us that he has the authority to do so. He's offered us a place as his brothers and sisters. He has pointed out that we are choosing a side even when we think we're refusing to choose. And he has made an impassioned plea for us to choose to accept God's offer. Because of Christ, we can be one. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says, Consequently, this is consequent to becoming Christians, Christian believers, part of God's family. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So the question is, would you rather remain a stranger or would you like to be part of that house and kingdom of God? My plea to you is the same as the one that Jesus made to the Pharisees. Look, you're either in or you're out. Pay attention. Get into the kingdom. Don't let your pride blind you to the reality. It's okay what you've done or said or thought or believed before. You know what? That's That's been your life to this point. What matters, though, is what you choose to do now and in the days to come. Don't wait. That's like leaving your house empty. Don't wait. Don't leave your house empty. Come join the family today and for the rest of your days. I think that's given you enough to chew on for one week. Let's say a prayer. Father, I always say let's say a prayer. I don't want to just say a prayer. Let's talk about how we're going to live this out. God, you and me, we need to figure out how we're going to live this out. And anyone else who's here praying, they need to talk to you and figure out how they're going to live this out. How is it that we are going to be and behave as part of your family? Help us to accept that you have offered us a place. I know it can be so hard to believe that you're there or willing to care about someone so small or insignificant as me in this great cosmos and yet you assure us over and over and over that you do care about each of us individually and that you want us to come together as individuals to form this collective this family this group of your people so that we can be together with you for always god help each person who hears your word who hears your message to devote themselves from this point forward to being part of your family, to being a representative of your family, to being someone who wants to draw others into your family, to being someone who recognizes others as part of our family. For each one of us, that's going to mean something just a little bit different because we are all different people. God, help work with each one of us so that we know how best to represent you and honor you as the father, the head of our family. Family is so important and so many of us, especially in the Western world, have never experienced what a true family can be. God, give us that sense, that feeling, that belonging that comes with being part of your family. Help us to not only feel it, but to know it and to want to share it with those around us. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, who was the best example of how to do this. 
Help us live his example. Help us learn from his example as we go through life this week. In that name of that Jesus, amen. Hey, wherever you go, wherever you're at right now and wherever you're heading from this point forward, remember, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. Go with God as part of his family. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week.